One of the headlines I wanted to pick your brain about this week, Dad, is this, I guess, accidental fee that was paid that was nearly 84, yes, 84 Bitcoin. I think the exact number was 83.7 Bitcoin for a fee. I think they're going to get it returned, but I was wondering if you caught actually what happened with all this. This is one of the joys of social media because drama like this can play out in real time and you can watch it. Apparently, the owner of this large number of Bitcoins moved funds into a newly generated cold wallet, which was instantly swept by a third party. Because the total amount of Bitcoin in this transaction was, I think, around 134 Bitcoin. And they ended up paying 83.7 in transaction fees. <laughs> this kind of behavior is pretty consistent with attackers attempting to sweep insecure wallets, basically wallets generated with insecure entropy, because there are people who have compiled databases, basically hash values for insecure private keys. They're just watching the blockchain and they're trying to sweep any funds in any new address that looks like it has a guessable private key. And that means that multiple attackers are competing to sweep these funds the moment they see them. And this can result in incredibly high fees because from an attacker's perspective, if they pay 99% of the address amount in fees, they've still made money, right? Right. What do they care? It's free money for them. If they try to save on fees, another attacker might just pay a little bit more. So it leads to this kind of weird behavior. But the really interesting thing is that the supposed owner of the funds is actually communicating kind of behind the scenes with Munanot and I think I want to say Lisa Lisa something they they were basically talking about how this person's communicating with them and has signed some messages using related address keys and so they might potentially be able to establish their identity such that maybe the fees could be returned to them. I mean, they're still going to lose the 50 Bitcoin or, or 60 Bitcoin that the attacker managed to receive. They might get the feedback. Well, it pays to know people, I suppose. It's nice to have the email address of uh, some of these folks, I suppose. <laughs> well, I mean, I think they're just on Twitter chatting. So that's kind of cool. Oh, okay. The other interesting thing about this, and this kind of dovetails with something I've been dealing with, is it's a really good idea to have an understanding of how to handle kind of bad situations in Bitcoin before you run into them. I just spent like the last couple of weeks dealing with a stuck transaction, and I had to do a lot of stuff I've never done before. Oh, ooh, tell us. Well, so in LND, if you send an on-chain Bitcoin transaction from an LND wallet, it doesn't have RBF enabled by default, so I probably need to turn that on. But it does have child pays for parent or parent pays for child. You can basically send another transaction, which spends one of the outputs of, of your stuck transaction, thus incentivizing a miner to mine both. But because fees are so crazy, my original transaction had been purged out of mempools, including my local node. So I actually had to expand my local node mempool, rebroadcast the first transaction, and then rebroadcast a fee bumping transaction until eventually they percolated and were mined. So it was a multi-step <laughs> process. And what did you have to increase your uh, mempool memory size to? I matched the mempool.space size of 1.3 gigabytes. Oh, okay. I've been wondering if I should increase mine too. Yeah, I don't know uh -huh. if you have to in a situation like that. It might be useful because my original transaction was still on mempool.space. So I didn't feel comfortable like abandoning mm -hmm. that original transaction because it was going to go through some time. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, in a way, it's kind of nice that you can do that without having to call a 1-800 number up 
go through a phone tree for 30 minutes and then talk to somebody who barely speaks there your language is to get no support. number yeah you are the support but you could also educate yourself enough to resolve it this is the bitcoin dad pod recorded on friday december 1st 2023 and i'm here as always remotely with oh it's me hey everybody welcome back to the pod it's chris me hi thanks for joining us on today's show, we'll discuss how the next Bitcoin environmental FUD is probably going to be water usage. It's even dumber than energy FUD, but it's here. Unchained, a Bitcoin investment company, has released a report about U.S. investor sentiment around Bitcoin. It's incredibly bullish, kind of interesting. In economics, the Bank of England has an article about global R-star, the natural interest rate. I thought this might be a opportunity to explore a general econ topic and also reveal why modeling human and societal behavior, assuming everyone's a rational actor and everything's just a big machine, is pretty dumb. The U.S. Treasury wants to expand warrantless mass surveillance and also get the ability to sanction open source software. Sounds like a great idea. We'll get into Coin Center's article on that. Then in Bitcoin education, the latest Bitcoin opt-out covers liquidity advertisements, which are a feature of dual-funded lightning channels. This is really cool. And so we'll explain what that is and how it works. And then we've got some feedback and boosts, and that's our show. All right, so let's get into this FUD. This is a this was a great one because they're getting a little bit smoother about how these roll out. You know, I saw a report come out and then about 12 hours later, I, it might have been almost half a dozen stories from BBC, The Verge, Yahoo, New Scientist, Euronews, Fast Company, Interesting Engineering, uh, California Investing. I mean, the list goes on and on. They all drop within a few minutes of each other, all within the same hour. A headline that essentially reads Bitcoin transactions, individual Bitcoin transactions use enough water to fill a swimming pool and it just rolled out this week at the heart of this story is our favorite dutch economist and occasional booster alex de Vries, who has a model of bitcoin energy consumption that he has debated with people in the bitcoin space and it's interesting because on the one hand you're like okay well good on you to talk about it on the other hand it's completely non-productive because he just doesn't acknowledge any of the points that are made that his model is designed to overestimate bitcoin energy consumption when there's a bull market and then not adjust downwards when there's a bear market you basically always get sort of like the worst possible view of Bitcoin energy consumption. And then he insists on parsing that data on a per transaction basis. And so what he's essentially trying to do here is he's trying to create a model that you can use to justify sanctioning Bitcoin due to its energy consumption, because it's always going to overstate it. It's like the most alarmist view of Bitcoin energy consumption, while simultaneously looking at Bitcoin energy consumption through the lens of transactions, which makes it easy to compare it to Visa or MasterCard, which makes all of the comparisons even worse. So that's Alex DeVries. And now, because I guess everyone got tired of Bitcoin energy FUD, they're also adding water usage to the mix. And it's it's an alarming amount of water, an entire U.S. average U.S. swimming pool per transaction. Of course, that's because data centers are cooled with water. Uh, and so the way that this data was derived is the researcher looked at a map. They're from Amsterdam, but they looked at a map in the U.S. that shows where coal power is at and where hydro and you know, all the various power sources like Natch and whatnot. And then they over 
overlaid that with where they know some Bitcoin miners are. And so then they guessed, they estimated based on this flawed formula, how much energy the Bitcoin miner was using. And then based on that, they estimated how much water would be required in that area to cool it. And then they kind of put this whole thing together. Um, and they really didn't call anybody. They didn't investigate this. They just kind of looked at all on a map and figured it out. So they really actually have no idea how much energy is being used. They really have no idea how much water and how they cool it and what the mix is. It's all kind of just gaze, guess work based on looking at maps of what's registered online. And then to try to break it down per transaction, like Dad said, is just, well, it's a classic mistake because Bitcoin is using the same amount of energy when it's processing one transaction as it is when it's processing 400,000 transactions. It doesn't break down like that. The fundamental logical fallacy is you're thinking Bitcoin is a payments network. I mean, yes, a payments network is part of Bitcoin. And therefore, if you're using all this energy, but you're only processing one block of 4,000 transactions every 10 minutes, then you idiots need to be using Visa because Visa can process 60,000 transactions a second and it uses a fraction of the energy. And so that perspective is just wrong because one, people are using Bitcoin to save. And so your Bitcoin that you are not moving that are just a savings instrument, they are being protected by all of the hash power that is finding new blocks. So you're benefiting from that hash power even if you're not transacting. Two, transaction networks, payment networks have absolutely different properties. And so Visa is really only useful for certain types of consumer transactions. I mean, obviously, you also have business credit cards, but on the whole, it's a consumer payments network. Bitcoin is a payments network. It can be used for consumer payments. It can be used for international payments. It can be used for illicit payments, for illegal payments. All of those are possible with Bitcoin. So it's a completely different animal. So everything about this sort of a degrees energy per transaction lens is, in my opinion, wrong. Because the goal of this research, which Mr. DeVries is quoted in the article, is to say Bitcoin doesn't need to use this energy because look at Ethereum. They use proof of stake. Yeah, Ethereum saved 99.9% of their electrical use by switching to proof of stake. Right. Why don't Bitcoiners want to do that? Do they just hate the environment? It's framed as if Bitcoin developers have been hesitant to switch to proof of stake as if it's even possible, as if it wouldn't be a fundamental change. But the other thing that that completely ignores is that, as we've stated on the show before, and it's well documented, Ethereum nodes are very big servers with very, very large power draw inside giant data centers that use water. The idea that Ethereum is somehow so much better in this regard than Bitcoin is provably false. Just look at where the Ethereum nodes run and how those data centers are cooled. So there's so many fundamentals that the author doesn't understand. And then the way that it just gets put on put on blast, right? You know, Bitcoin being used to capture methane in energy stranded regions or helping balance the Texas power grid, that doesn't get any play. But research paper that's based on flawed data with flawed methodology and flawed assumptions gets put on blast from the BBC to the Verge. And that's very that's very frustrating because it really doesn't hold up to scrutiny. We just kind of look at the overall methodology. And I think one of the things that we're going to continue to see with this is water is the new boogeyman. Maybe we'll see it used against the AI data centers because I looked up what is publicly available about Microsoft's Azure data center water usage since the launch of OpenAI, which runs on their hardware. And it's astronomical. And they have dozens of these. And I can only find information for one. But the water usage at that one data center is up exponentially. And they have like 100 of these data centers around the world. But nobody's writing about that either. And maybe this water fear porn will move to that. But it, it it's... 
to me, it's funny how it always rolls out with Bitcoin. There's always this, there's always mention about Ethereum in here, and they always try to go for the per transaction gotcha. And it's the same formula. And even though we can debunk it over and over again, it still gets a lot of play. It's just interesting how AI data center loads seem to get a pass, but you put Bitcoin mining in a data center and there's just this kind of, I don't know, pro-environment like revulsion around Bitcoin mining. I know this is a cliche, but tis the season. I was just watching a YouTuber who was really into Christmas lights and, you know, he didn't put up a lot of Christmas lights this year, but he you know, maybe maybe five strands in total of different styles and it doubled his power bill. And that's he, he's also an EV owner and he's so he's a, it doubled it after he's already been an EV user. It still doubled his power use having these, these Christmas lights up. Classic good ones. <laughs> the ones with the real nice classic colors are not LED because the LEDs are so bright, right? Like when you get a blue LED, it's 100 percent blue. It's it's emitting blue. But when you get an old blue Christmas light or a red one, it's actually a standard, you know, filament. metal filament in there yeah. glowing white with a red cap over it or a blue cap over it. So the light's actually very different. Yeah, and it gives that nice kind of warm quality. And it's literally warm because it's yeah. heating up <laughs> a freaking yeah. piece of metal. I mean, you think about those Christmas lights, they just plug directly into mains, right? They don't have like a brick on them doing transformation. It's just that whole line's taking the, the, the wall volts. <laughs> So there's just so many things that use so much power, but we don't try to do the scare porn around it. I guess here we are. I think what I thought, Dad, was that we had turned the corner a little bit on the ESG fear with uh, all the ETFs coming on board and BlackRock pulling back from ESG and so many ESG investments turning out to be real losers. I thought maybe we had turned the corner on this and instead we were going to be now into the it's used for terrorism. And that, you know, maybe that was. Well, that comes later in the episode. Yeah. Right. But clearly it's the water stuff, the water stuff. And man, did that work. I'll put a link in the show notes that rounds up like a dozen of the stories from over at Stacker News. And uh, yeah, it worked. It worked. I'm sure the people that were looking and the great, you know, the funny thing is, is like you can debunk it every time, but they're still going to stack these W's. They're still they still it all builds on top. All the previous FUD, it's all building on top of itself to make this empirical case. Right. Until it gets quoted in a congressional testimony and now it's part of the official record. That's where I think this is going to go. I think that's exactly where this goes inevitably. Warren does something with it. The White House does something with it. This inevitably ends up when they're looking at crypto legislation, which has been officially bumped till next year in 2024 for uh, crypto regulation from the U.S. Congress. When that comes up, this will come up again. These stories will be pulled out and they'll be just pointed out as fact simply because they were covered by so many different outlets. And it'll just be, what are we going to do about the water usage of Bitcoin mining? we got to build that into the regulation. That's my prediction. I mean, do we need to take a bet on this? Because I think you're probably going to win our work from home bet as well. Yeah, all right. Thousand sats. Uh, thousand sats. But we we won't know till next year. So somebody's going to have to remind us. So somebody mark it down. Episode 113. And the bet is that Elizabeth Warren includes Bitcoin water FUD in an attack or the on White Bitcoin. House. Oh, or, or the White I know House. it's this broad, but well, yeah, that's it's like going to be either. Now. You just want to take my money, Chris. Okay, okay. How about this? How about this? So what I really think is going to happen is when we get to crypto regulation in 2024, I think this is going to come up again. I don't know who will introduce it, but I think this comes up again. Okay. So when there's talk about crypto regulation in 2024, water usage of Bitcoin mining is a big part of that conversation. Well, it's at least part of it. Okay, yeah. a part of it. Okay. So you're taking the over, I'm taking the under, right? Okay. Thousand right. I hope I'm wrong. I'd love to be wrong. So I'd, I'd love to I'll be happily wrong. pay that thousand sats. Yeah. Yeah. Happily. Also, Jay Powell, work from home is driving down commercial real estate prices. You should tell people to stop that. I know That's you true. listened. Yeah. Come on, Jay Powell. Come on. Dad needs those, sat- Dad needs those sats. <laughs> so to counterbalance this kind of 
annoying, depressing FUD stuff. What exactly is this FUD fighting against? What it is fighting against is an incredibly popular asset that is owned by over a quarter of Americans. So Unchained Capital, they will sell you Bitcoin, they have Bitcoin retirement products, vaults, inheritance systems. So you know they, they offer a lot of Bitcoin stuff. They also poll investors. And so 55% of people who self-identified as investors reported already owning Bitcoin. That's already 55%. They have very bullish price targets for it. They think that Bitcoin is going to outperform gold and the S&P 500 over the next year. But here's what's kind of interesting. This group is also 55% female. And that kind of surprised me. I'm not surprised to see that millennials and Gen X are the biggest Bitcoin holders around 70%, followed by the boomers and then Gen Z with the smallest holding because Gen Z are younger and haven't had as much opportunity to save. But I'm really interested to see that Bitcoin as a asset seems to be breaking out of its kind of tech bro, libertarian dude with a goatee and a provocative trucker hat, and now is also held by like, you know, just investors in general, like a wider group of people. That's really interesting to me. You know, when cannabis was legalized in Washington, I recall the first people that owned the cannabis shops and the grow ops were like dudes that were the black market sellers that have just gone legitimate. And they had a good head start. And I just figured they would run away with the market. But you know, I was, I have a family member who's in the, in the business. And he said that more and more, the majority of cannabis businesses are owned by women in Washington and that they've really, they've really kind of taken over. And I think maybe it's something about when you have like a newish kind of industry that is starting today, something that's starting from ground one, you know, ground, the ground floor today. There's less of, you know, people that are already there, people that are already kind of keeping their bags. Like you just, there's more natural opportunity. One of the things I really think that's true about Bitcoin, and I, I think history will get this wrong. People will claim, well, it was only the rich that could have bought Bitcoin once Bitcoin is worth a bunch. But the reality is this is going to be one of the most fundamental shifts for people that don't have much. Like you can buy fractions of Bitcoin at a time and you can just sit there a little bit at a time buying a fraction. Maybe every now and then you buy a little bit here and maybe a couple of weeks go by, you can't afford any, but then an opportunity comes along and you buy a little bit. And you actually own it because when you do fractionalized stock purchases, you're owning an account with a company that has yeah. a claim on shares at the depository clearing corporation. What do you actually own here again? Whereas with Bitcoin, you can literally own $5 of Bitcoin in your own wallet. That's still a thing you can do. And the thing that I think that maybe folks that are not as well off are inherently feeling, but they haven't really realized yet is with fiat, you have to earn it twice, right? You get paid in fiat. And then if you really want to grow your wealth, can't just put it in savings, you'll actually lose money doing that. So you have to become like a stock expert or an investment, a real estate expert, or some kind of expert in a field where you got, and maybe you also need to start watching macro trends and you got to start watching how the rest of the market's playing out and who's doing well. Maybe what's going on in the Middle East, because that might infect your investments. Like you got to become an expert in all of this stuff in the fiat world to earn your money again, to earn it again, where you can actually gain. But with Bitcoin, you just stack sats. And because of the limited quantity, it grows in value. It grows in scarcity. And I think for a lot of people, that's so much simpler. I mean, maybe they're getting a Coinbase app and they're doing it through Coinbase with some sort of crazy fee, but it's still so much simpler than going through some sort of website that has, you know, all this other kind of banking stuff on that you don't understand, like a Fidelity or, or Charles Schwab. I think in a lot of ways, if you if you remove yourself from it and you think about it from the app experience, yes, it's KYC and yes, it's custodial. But if you think about it from an experience standpoint, you don't really have to be a macroeconomic expert 
to invest in Bitcoin. You just DCA. But if you really want your stocks to perform, if you really want your real estate investment to perform, if you really want to be able to get a return with fiat, you really do have to learn all that stuff. And if you're a mom and you got a job and maybe you got school bills you're paying or you're going to school and you got a lot of things going on, who has time to become a macroeconomic expert just so that way they can earn their fiat again for a second time? And if, if, if I were in their position, I would just stack sats. So I, I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's weird at all that we're seeing a, a large growth in female investors. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of people, when they just look at the obvious complications of trying to earn with fiat versus earning with Bitcoin, I think more people will go that direction. It's going to it's it'll eventually flip and I'll be like, oh, this is the easier option, not the harder one. And one thing that makes Bitcoin an easier decision than, say, more traditional investments is something called Global R Star. So Bank Underground is my favorite central bank sponsored blog. It's put on by the Bank of England. And, you know, everything they write sort of generally sucks in a specific way, but it's really useful to kind of get a view of official positions on certain monetary topics. And R star refers to the natural rate of interest. And so the model we're dealing with here is that the economy, the world, there's sort of a natural rate of interest, the natural time value of money. And on top of that, inside the interest rates that we see is layered inflation and uncertainties around credit risk and things like that. So R star is a theoretical natural rate that's always going to be lower than the rate you actually get in reality. And models for calculating and projecting R star have basically seen this rate fall from between 2 and 3% between 1900 to 1935. It fell quite low to around 1% uh, in the 50s. It increased to sort of higher to those previous levels from the 70s to the 90s. And then it's been falling off a cliff. And now projections of global R star sees R star being negative after 2020 and into the future. And that's the trend. So why would the global natural interest rate turn negative over time and continue in that trajectory. That doesn't make sense, right? I mean, why would the time value of money be negative? Well, they helpfully decompose what they think the drivers of our star are and the negative contributors to this trend are longevity and productivity growth, which longevity is increasing, people are living longer, even with COVID, that didn't really change long-term trends around relatively long lifespans, especially in the developed world. And global productivity seems to be falling. So this is kind of interesting because longevity, why does that reduce productivity? People living longer, they would consume more. But they don't necessarily work more, right? They retire at, say, 65, 70 and live to 95. Well, what's the problem? If they had savings, then they spend those savings into the economy. Is the problem they're not producing anything? The issue is they don't have savings. The issue is that they oh. have unfunded <laughs> government pensions. That was a trick question. <laughs> I did. I got you. Yes. So basically, the issue with longevity is that social security programs around the world are generally funded or not funded with government pay-as-you-go programs. And so they only work when the retired population is smaller than the working population. Simultaneously, productivity growth turning negative is another driver of this sort of R-star falling ever lower trend. Well, how's productivity growth calculated? It's basically just GDP divided by hours worked in the economy. Well, what's the problem there? Well, what's the largest contributor to GDP around the world? It's government spending. Right. What you can see there is that Basically, the inputs for this model are just stupid. If GDP is an input in your model, you're getting a reflexive problem 
where government spending, which is at historically high levels and crowds out investment from the private sector and eventually co-ops financial markets quite fundamentally to enable governments to continue offering debt, this distorts both the real economy and your ability to make predictions about it. And I think this is kind of a tidy little example of how a technocratic view of the world, a mechanical view of human society and the economy, is just very insufficient. It's clearly wrong. It leads you to sort of obvious logical fallacies and poor policy conclusions. And it would be great if people in charge could be a bit more humble and say, hey, you know, we can't really make accurate predictions. The world is a complex system. Humans are unpredictable and illogical. You know, maybe maybe we should take our hand off the wheel a little. Let's let this car drive itself for a bit. See how that goes. <laughs> That'd be like saying, you don't need me. I don't need this job. Yeah, they're never going to do that. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I think we get change when maintaining these expensive systems of centralization and control is not supportable. Because, I mean, obviously, the people in charge, they cut their own salaries last, right? But I think eventually that has to be the outcome. Unfortunately, we're pretty far from that place, in my view. It's like, hard to explain, but it feels like they're, they're using a two-dimensional model to try to measure a three-dimensional problem, right? They can take a few slices. They can take a, they can take a lot of inputs, but they cannot account for the human psychology and the just organic aspect to the market. And you cannot centrally manage that human psychology either. But they can't, they can't really come out and say, well, it's too big of a complex problem for us to manage. We'll just take a couple of weeks off and see how it goes. They can't say that. So they have to come up with more ways to model it properly. They have to try to improve upon those models and then they can continue to just manage it better. And that's, yeah, like you said, it's going to be a lot of that for a while. <laughs> you think maybe the rest of our life, you think we'll have a central bank? I think it's probably pretty safe to say, right? For the rest of our lives, we'll have a central bank in the United States. I mean, I think it always makes sense to have a central bank. Having read the history of the U.S. banking system, having a central bank, even with the conflicts of interest that that caused, was generally better than not having one. The issue is just the scale of the central bank and the restrictions that the monetary system places on it. We just happened to have lived over the last 30 years through a period where there were very few restrictions on central bank policy, and they had a favorable economic backdrop that made them look like heroes. And this gave central bankers a lot of credibility, which they are quickly incinerating. And I think that the negative global economic backdrop, the challenges of maintaining central bank autonomy in a world where they clearly need to lower interest rates to enable governments to continue functioning at their current bloated size is pushing central banks to find new boogeymen and attempt to pull moonshot technological solutions out of their hat. And CBDCs are a good example of this. There's a big discussion in Europe right now, in particular, around European CBDCs and, and why the European Central Bank wants one. And there are many arguments against them. I mean, one, why do we need one in the first place when we already have lots of bank payment systems, cash, etc.? And there's this odd circularity where the central bank is saying, well, cash seems to be used less. So let's invent a digital cash that we can control and fully surveil. And then maybe people will use that. And it's like, well, no, why would they prefer a surveillance tool over a private payment technology? That doesn't quite make sense. Convenience, dad. It's convenient. So convenient, right? Well, and, and the other issue with 
you know, basically retail CBDCs is that they are competing with banks for deposits. They're essentially cannibalizing the banking system that the central bank is supposed to steward and safeguard. And since the banking system with all of its flaws is still a source of capital creation in society, you know, this is just a terrible idea in terms of long-term growth. I mean, central banks have been, they're just demonstrably bad at everything they do. So giving them control over the consumer payment system. I mean, it's just a fundamentally crazy and, and stupid idea. But you get desperate, crazy ideas when people are desperate. And I think that you're not going to want to be a central banker after 2023. I think it's just going to be a rough job because you're going to have persistent issues with deflationary and inflationary busts. I think it's going to be it's going to be a rocky road where we'll have low inflation and then high inflation and just sort of keeps coming back through a cycle, hard to pin down, just like the 70s in many respects. And on the other hand, you're going to have governments that are fiscally unsustainable that basically need financial repression to finance themselves. And so you have to thread this needle of inflating away citizens' savings and purchasing power to enable the government to keep working, but in a way that is hard to observe and you don't get too much popular political back. For. So I just don't think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be a rough time of it. And so you get stupid ideas like CBDCs. And CBDCs could be very useful in a system like this, because if you can impose more controls around how people spend money, you could actually manage their spending in a way that can reduce your inflation numbers or increase them if you need to, or threaten to reduce their balances if they don't spend their money within a certain time period. So you could actually boost short-term economic activity. Can you think of anyone who has an incentive to boost short-term economic activity, like say before an election? I mean, the possibility for abuse oh, it's, it's great. and distortion, it, it's incredible. Also, Dad, don't forget about the national security implications. I mean, how fantastic would it be if random XY open source project was all of a sudden identified as helping a terrorist organization or a you know, new group that we just launched a war with? We could just shut down payments to them. You know, the moment that the Treasury Department updates the OFAC sanctions list, boom, the ability to send money there would be instantly turned off. It's brilliant. And we're all going to be so much safer. And of course, this is a reference to Coin Center's new blog post about financial surveillance, privacy, and autonomy, because the U.S. Department of the Treasury... This week, this is a new letter. This is a new letter they're sending out. I sent a letter to the heads of the Senate Banking and House Financial Services Committees. Right. And they're repeating this FUD about how Hamas and terrorist groups are financing their operations, and they're blaming it on crypto, and they propose an expansion of warrantless mass surveillance that the Treasury can do, uh, overt approval to sanction open source software if people are using it for financial privacy, which is it's a very vague statement, but it basically suggests that they want to remove freedom of speech protections for anything that could have to do with terrorist financing, which turns into anything because this is a very broad topic and we all have to AML and KYC ourselves for every single financial transaction we do, no matter how trivial, because of fears around terrorist financing after 9-11. I mean, the joke is, where is the terrorist financing? It's a completely tiny 
insignificant amount of financial activity. It doesn't, you know, this stuff doesn't stop terrorists at all. It just imposes costs on everybody and surveils us more. So this is just a very cynical proposal in every sense. And it could potentially make writing open source software or running a node at home technically illegal. And that's where we're headed. Here's what they say about nodes. They say virtual asset wallet providers, which include certain blockchain validator nodes and decentralized finance services. So they just kind of throw in their blockchain validator nodes as part of the virtual asset wallet providers definition. So they kind of make it sound like potentially running a Bitcoin node could be illegal. This is really, really rough stuff. This is probably the most aggressive we've ever seen from the Treasury Department. It kind of is remarkable that they can continue to tighten this noose around citizens' financial freedom, which is, to me, a lot of this kind of smacks in the face of the freedom of speech. I mean, like, they, like they, I think there is some legal challenges possibly here, but they don't have to demonstrate success before they do it. They've never had to demonstrate once that any of this has ever worked before they just continue to do more of it. Uh, yeah, and it's demonstrably been incredibly costly, disenfranchised poorer people from financial services and getting bank accounts and things like that. And there's never been any rigorous analysis of the cost versus the benefit of these surveillance programs because, you know, again, the people making the rules are the ones who administer these programs and it gives them both financial and political power. And so there's just no incentive to not abuse systems and laws like this. It's just terrible, terrible incentives. Their recommendation calls for making blockchain nodes or other elements of cryptocurrency transactions subject to the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Oh, emergency powers. How great. That authority would allow the Treasury to sanction these entities, even if it's only software. For an example, they cite tornado cash litigation, and that was important. I think this is, uh, I mean, I don't always agree with Coin Center, but this is a fight that I want them to fight. I, I really, in this in this particular instance, I'm all behind Coin Center on them pushing against this. Absolutely. And this is one moment where the incentives of Bitcoin and crypto come together because all of the centralized altcoin projects are much easier to sanction than Bitcoin. So they have every incentive for this not to happen, I hope. You know, and a lot of this, Dad, comes from that bogus Wall Street Journal article. Again, where they said that this money was going to Hamas. Like, you see how these bogus articles come out and then they, they're used as justification. And maybe they maybe these articles get leaked from government officials to kick the whole thing off. I'm cynical enough to believe that now. But you see how the cycle works. The story comes out. And then a few weeks later, a month later, we got a letter from the Treasury Department going to senators telling them we got to crack down. And just in time for them to take up crypto leg- regulation next year in 2024. Just in time. You could shake it all off, though, by going over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Go check out the self-hosted podcast. Podcast. Special guest Wolfgang joined us and we got into all kinds of goodies, including our issues with the new PF Sense changes. And then Linux Unplugged, it's going to be a banger this week. We're going to get into our most embarrassing war stories. Uh, and then last week, we had on the NixCon organizer to tell us about NixCon North America. And then we had on Wim Tamus from Pipewire to tell us about the new Pipewire release. That and more, like Coda Radio, over at my podcast network, jupiterbroadcasting.com. That was a banger of a self hosted. I'm currently running PF Sense community edition which hasn't received an update in a year Uh oh what is your upgrade path out of this i mean are we thinking vios as the firewall you know i'm i know you're gonna hate this answer but i'm very seriously considering just a base nick system real simple firewall box like a little tiny box with two nicks on there running nix os maybe cockpit for a little bit of remote management maybe 
and just keep it really, really simple. But, but maybe this would work for you because if all of... I have no inbound firewall rules anymore. So it's, my firewall rules are a lot simpler. Right. If your devices are all running tail scale, then yep. you need a very simple firewall because everything's basically being handled at the tail scale level. And you can do tail scale firewall rules and routing and everything too. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's sort of a post tail scale setup. You, I mean, you could just plug in a consumer box at that point. You would only need a switch if you're yeah. doing something fancy like I have where I LACP some of my server ports to get more throughput to the switch and the router. Yeah, I just kind of feel like if I don't need any inbound ports, then I could probably do something really simple that I can just manage myself and just run on a generic piece of hardware and it'll probably run forever. Well, this week's Bitcoin Optech is short and sweet. Chris, tell us everything you know about dual funded channels in Lightning and why you want them. Oh, I thought you wanted me to tell you about the new liquidity ads. You know, come on. Don't you want uh, don't you want liquidity? Just pay an upfront fee and then they'll just hook you up when you need it using a decentralized Lightning gossip protocol. Come on. The liquidity advertising is part of a dual funded channel. So the the idea is that when we open a Lightning channel, we collaborate such that you send an input in, I send an input in. And now we have a balance on both sides of the channel. So it's cool because now we can both send and receive. We don't end up mm. in this situation where only one person can send and only one person can receive. That that seems obvious, right? Well, you also kind of need to have this ability to advertise liquidity because now your node has to be able to talk to another node and provide an input. And so on a certain level, it's kind of scary because your node is sort of like automatically making Bitcoin transactions and sending Bitcoin around. On the other hand, it makes a lot of sense and you could have a lot of heuristics. Your liquidity advertisement could specify that you will provide up to a certain amount and maybe the channel has to have a minimum size. You can kind of have some parameters so that people don't just type your Bitcoin by opening small channels with you or or things like that. So this is super cool. It makes Lightning more efficient, work better. It's a super obvious thing to develop. So glad it's in Core Lightning, and apparently it's uh, going to be rolled out into a clear soon. And other than that, there is just a lot of really interesting Bitcoin Q&A questions from the Stack Exchange. So I would suggest checking it out and uh, edumacating yourself. Link in the show notes, as always. Don't forget, you can also get in touch with the show. You can email us, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com. You can also uh, post us at WeaponX at bitcoindadpod on there. Or get in the real-time chat. That's our Matrix channel. It's going 24-7. You need element and something like that, but we'll have details and links in the show notes. And with that, Dad, it is time for Zaboos. And our baller booster this week is Halleck with 10,000 sats. He was listening on Fountain to Strangling the Golden Duck. I'm sorry, as a large language model trained only on Bitcoin DadPod transcripts, I cannot provide the collective noun for a duck. I do have a Markov chain with a high likelihood of Halleck comes in with 10,000 sats, though. (laughs) Oh, wow. I like that. I'm, I think I'm falling friend. in love with our listeners all over again. Aren't they great? Yeah, that is pretty great. Also, shout out to Bob, 3,000 sats via Albi automatically. And uh, 33 over 10 came in with a row of ducks using Breeze saying, here's a small row of ducks for the Bitcoin Dad PITU, which is best Bitcoin Dad podcast in the universe. <laughs> Thank you. So does that mean that episode 111, Strangling the Golden Duck, was our best episode? Or does it mean that there are multiple Bitcoin Dad podcasts and we are the best podcast of the Bitcoin Dad type? Yeah, or there's multiple universes in which there's multiple Bitcoin Dad pods in those universes. And of those universes, we are the best Bitcoin Dad pod. But I hadn't thought it might be the best episode in the Bitcoin Dad pod universe, which would be like the Bitcoin Dad pod 
franchise or family of shows, or perhaps like BDU, Bitcoin Dad Universe. I was quite pleased with the <laughs> title because it's sort of like you did a criticism with, you know, killing the golden goose. Yeah. And we ended up with the golden duck. Yeah. yeah this is great. The golden duck. Magnolia Mayhem boosted in 6,222 sats from the podcast index directly. Good job. With the title Evil Rooster Boost. Is that what 6,222 is? Oh, maybe. There is a there is a list out there. I should look it up. As much as I would love to rage boost about some guy who said he didn't like Bitcoin one time, I do have a bit of a practical question that I'd like to send in. I've been into, air quotes, Bitcoin since the Halcyon days of 2011, but I've never been very deeply knowledgeable on the subject, to the point that I accidentally annoyed some people off back in the day by referring it to it as BitCon. Oh, wow. You're one of us. You read things and then you don't know how to say it. I started listening to your show in hopes of picking out some basic entry points and moving up from there. Well, that was your mistake thing. But I guess it's better to just ask. I think I just need to restart from basics, pretending that I haven't acquired any knowledge over the years. This obviously isn't the case since I'm boosting this in now, but I think going back to basics will fill in any holes that I've left open over the years. What resources are out there for someone in this position? Is this the best path? So I think it's a great idea to go back to basics. That said, you may find them boring because you might be surprised by how much you know already. So I think that reading as much mastering Bitcoin as you can stomach is a great way to sort of review things at a very basic level, like a very fundamental level, like quite exacting, but fundamental. Then I think that getting a node running and trying out maybe the Bitcoin from the CLI GitHub course is uh, one way to get a lot of like Bitcoin CLI ability. You start a node on testnet and then you send test transactions from the Bitcoin CLI. I think an experience like that will make you feel very confident and like you kind of understand things on a more fundamental yeah, level. Use it. Use it in ways you haven't used it before. I, I'm going to all throw the Bitcoin standard in there as a book recommendation too. I think a lot of people really like that. Um, so that might get you kind of wrapping your head around. You've, mastering Bitcoin and the Bitcoin standard, those also get you wrapping your head around it. But I think using it's probably the connection you might be missing. You know, play around with Sparrow, read their docs. Like dad said, set up a node, get a little bit of a feel for that side of the network. I think uh, there's like, there's two types of education when it comes to Bitcoin. And there's like the intellectual, financial, conceptual stuff and the books will do a really good job and with some of the technical aspect too, especially mastering Bitcoin. But then there's the hands-on practical and I think uh, you just can't beat that. Scott comes in with a row of ducks using Podverse. He says, I know exactly how much a row of ducks is. It's easy to get pessimistic about all the crackdowns, but it does make me happier to know that the cypherpunk, Bitcoin, libertarian, freedom-oriented, call-it-what-you-want community generally is the strongest it's been for a long time and getting more serious about monetary alternatives. We might just make it through this. Oh, Scott, I like that nice positive message. Thank you for the row of ducks and that positive boost. We also had a baller boost from co-host Chris. <laughs> testing a boost via the fountain.fm web using strike as direct payment i had this realization that fountain fm we'll put a link we should put a link in the show notes it, it'll let you boost from their website and they'll give you a qr code and the brilliant thing about that is you could just use the cash app or the strike app directly you don't even need a podcasting 2.0 app you don't need albi you just need strike which is in 36 countries now or cash app and you can go to the fountain website and if you just google search fountain fm bitcoin dad pod there'll be a boost button there and you can use one of those apps or any any of your, your zeus Whatever you want that's on the Lightning Network. It's, I, I'm surprised I never thought about this because it cuts out all of the extra steps. Now, I still think people should get a podcasting 2.0 app. I still think that's a better experience. But if you really love your podcast app and you 
want to boost and you got Strike or you got Cash App, go to the Fountain FM website, send your message in, scan it with the QR code, you're good to go. And we could use a few more boosts. Uh, we only got uh, kind of a handful of sats, 32,166 sats. Of course, 10 of those, 10,000 of those were from me. <laughs> so we really got like 22,000 sats uh, total. Uh, from You're six funding boosters. me before you take all my money with gambling, right? Right. That's true. I'm going to take it in our bets. This is the get- uh, fattening the pig scam, right? <laughs> I think it's sort of like, I think we call it fractional reserve podcasting, where <laughs> we just move the funds around. <laughs> back and forth, back <laughs> yeah. and forth. But thank you, everybody who does take the time to get a new podcast app and boost in, or you got Albie and you go to the podcast index, or maybe you try it from the Fountain FM website for the first time. We just appreciate you taking a little bit of time, supporting the show, and sending a message in. It's one of our favorite segments, and there is no advertising in this show. So like on weeks like this, it's a loss leader. There's no, there's going to be no revenue this week. Uh, and helping with that is always appreciated because dad and I work hard, especially dad on this show. And not only is he doing the research and bringing his expertise, but he's doing all the damn editing and publishing too. It's, you, I mean, if you've never done it, you, it's, it's, all, it's not a sustainable amount of work. It, we'll see how long he can sustain it. That's what the question Yeah, and is. what's really interesting about podcast editing is you literally can't even pay anyone else to do it. It's so terrible. I mean- you can if you find just the right people, but it's not, you know, yeah, it's not but something I mean, that's cheap either. You literally <laughs> had like, you have had like odd people like living in your basement, yeah. you know, and yes. like paying them with pizza. I mean, there's just very there, odd we have the people done who want to do crazy things to get their editors and get them to get the right editor. And it's so much time. It's so intense. Anyway, it's just my way of saying that there's a lot of value that goes in from this end. So if you got some value out of the discussion or insights, we do appreciate the boost. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, December 1st, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, for the first day of Christmas with... (laughs) Hey, it's me. It's Chris, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Ho, ho, ho.